0: Good afternoon. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Multilateral International Development, Multilateral Institutions, and International Economic, Energy, and Environmental Policy will come to order. Once again, I want to thank the ranking member, Senator Merkley. Uh, Today's hearing represents our subcommittee's eighth hearing during the 115th Congress. I'm grateful for our continued partnership on, on this and many other issues. The title for today's hearing is Multilateral Economic Institutions and U.S. Foreign Policy. We'll divide today's hearing into two separate panels. Our first panel will consist of two administration witnesses, the Honorable David Mulpass, Under Secretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Department of Treasury, and the Honorable Roland Marcellus, Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Finance and Development at the US Department of State. I want to welcome both of you. Our second panel today will consist of five distinguished experts and former officials from previous administrations. I'll introduce each of them following this panel. Now, given this important topic and our excellent witnesses here today, I'm, of course, eager to hear from each of you. But before we do, allow me to frame this conversation somewhat. In July of 1944, delegates from 44 nations met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire to establish new rules and institutions for the post-World War II international economic system. These nations, led by the United States and informed by lessons regarding uh, the causes of World War II, sought to create institutions that would catalyze economic growth, reduce poverty, expand trade, and promote financial stability. The primary result of these negotiations were the International Monetary Fund and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is now part of the World Bank Group. At risk of ruining the surprise, allow me to say the following up front. The U.S. is not and should not be neutral when it comes to the continued success of these institutions. The U.S. helped create these multilateral institutions for good reasons and Americans have been among the leading beneficiaries. While the IMF World Bank and regional development banks aren't perfect and they require reform, on balance, they have promoted and sustained the open, rules-based international economic order that has facilitated decades of extraordinary economic growth for both Americans and people around the world. They've helped lift millions out of poverty doing good, creating international customers for American companies and promoting peace, stability, and prosperity. That's why I believe the U.S. should continue to support these institutions, pushing them to fulfill their important purposes and implement reforms where necessary. If we fail to lead and remain engaged in these multinational fora, other nations will step forward and replace us, namely China. In a vacuum created by the absence of U.S. leadership, Beijing would twist these organizations to their purposes and state capitalist model. Absent U.S. leadership and engagement, China would expedite the creation of alternatives to the institutions that have done so much good and serve the interests of Americans and millions around the world. Less powerful and prosperous nations would have little choice but to reluctantly bandwagon with Beijing. That would represent a negative outcome for Americans and for pretty much everyone other than the Chinese Communist Party. A coercive international economic order dominated by China would look very different. Now to be clear, most developing countries and particularly those in Asia, don't wanna be forced to choose between the United States and China. Many countries have genuine development needs and they'll find one way or another to address those needs. However, developing countries do want choices. The U.S. should ensure developing countries have an alternative to the Chinese model, which often involves poor transparency, unsustainable debt, and the creation of dependence, which is frequently exploited later for China's strategic advantage. We should use our voice and our vote in these international financial institutions to demand greater transparency from China and to ensure Beijing isn't saddling developing countries with unsustainable debt burdens. Simultaneously, we should lead with our strength, the private sector. We should ensure U.S. federal policies, laws, and institutions, as well as U.S. official development assistance, focus on catalyzing private investment, making clear that the United States wants prosperous and independent trading partners not dependent debtors to extort in order to gain access to a port. I look forward to discussing with our witnesses how these international financial institutions have benefited Americans, how they're performing, and what reforms may be necessary. I'm interested in discussing how the U.S. is or should be using our voice and our vote in these international financial institutions to address the lack of transparency from China we've seen in the developing world and some of the resulting debt burdens inflicted on developing countries. I'd also like to hear from our witnesses on the upcoming G20 summit and what key U.S. objectives the administration is or should be pursuing there. So with those thoughts in mind, I'd now like to call on
1: Ranking Member Merkley for his opening remarks. Senator Merkley. Uh, Thank you very much, Senator Young, in organizing this hearing and for your partnership over the last two years. I think this uh, subcommittee has examined a number of important issues and done so with a, a real policy framework, intentional effort to get to the bottom of, of the story, and uh, well done. I expect we'll hear from our State and Treasury Department witnesses about the value of U.S. contributions to the IMF and the World Bank, the value that they have in supporting a transparent development agenda that seeks to assist countries expand their economies. These efforts are particularly relevant in a world where so many countries seek financing from China whose loans come with lacks to non-existent labor and environmental standards and whose repayment terms are clouded in mystery. These are important issues and I look forward to hearing from our government witnesses on the administration's current efforts in this area. But China's opaque financing does not just affect the developing world. I hope to hear from our second panel about how Beijing's Anti-competitive behavior has violated the commitments it made to us and to the world community when we supported its membership in the World Trade Organization, another multilateral economic institution that affects U.S. foreign policy and workers here at home. Those violations include the theft of intellectual property, weak labor and environmental standards, and forcing U.S. and foreign companies to transfer technology. The Chinese government provides and continues to provide subsidized loans, export credits, loan forgiveness, and more for state-owned enterprises. These firms use those These unfair advantages to shrink market share for U.S. firms who don't receive the same benefits from Washington are forced to lay off workers. I want to note that when I was reading the materials for this hearing, it really emphasized the debt trap that China is using as an instrument of foreign policy. And it reminded me of a book I read in college called The Debt Trap. And uh, But this book was about the IMF's policy 45 years ago, and about how we had many loans that went to the elite in developing countries, how the elite banked those funds overseas, and how subsequent governments were left in these poor countries to repay the debt, leaving them in an extraordinary vulnerable situation in terms of policies that would benefit their citizens versus benefit foreign investors. It's been many, many decades in which the IMF's practices are very different. But now we have China adopting a debt trap model, adopting a model in which they are setting up a system where they can exercise leverage in a fashion that is not beneficial to the development of the uh, welfare of the citizens of many countries. And I think it merits this full investigation And I certainly appreciate you uh, scheduling this hearing.
0: Well, again, I I want to welcome our witnesses. Uh, Know that your full written statements will be included in the record, and uh, I thank you for the thoughtfulness uh, of those statements. I'd ask each of you to summarize your written statement, however, within five minutes so that we can engage in in a more extended. Uh, question and answer, answer period. So let's go in order that I announced you, Under Secretary Malpass.
2: Thank you very much, Senator Young, and uh, thank you, Senator Merkley. Um, thanks for holding the hearing. While there's been substantial economic progress in the United States, growth abroad has softened materially, causing challenges for international economic policy. Our goal is to achieve faster U.S. and global growth in ways that improve after-tax wages for American workers. I'd like to describe some of our major 2018 international policies in, in order to create the context for our work in the international financial institutions, the IFIs. We've engaged repeatedly Uh, with China on our trade and investment uh, concerns and the problems caused by their One Belt, One Road initiative. It often leaves countries with excessive debt and poor quality projects. If countries default on these debts, China often gains influence over the host governments and may take ownership of the underlying assets. We have influence over the host, uh, I'm sorry, we have built a common awareness of these concerns in the G7 and the G20. In lending, China often fails to adhere to international standards in areas such as anti-corruption, export credits, and finding coordinated and sustainable solutions to payment difficulties, such as those sought in the Paris Club. Um, In addition, to that work on China. We've built a common awareness, uh, as I mentioned, in the concerns in the G7 and G20, that's important. Secretary Mnuchin has pushed forward an initiative on debt transparency that will increase public disclosure and broaden the existing definition of international debt beyond traditional bonds and loans. We'll be working with the IMF and the World Bank in this initiative. It It should reduce the frequency and severity of developing country crises and help push back on China's overlending. With Congress's support, we've also enhanced America's national security through FIRMA, which has strengthened and modernized the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. CFIUS launched an innovative pilot program on November 10th which includes requiring declarations for certain foreign investments in U.S. businesses involved in critical technologies in 27 specific industries. We've worked multilaterally to forge a new currency consensus in the G20 to recognize the growth and investment benefits of currency stability. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement to be signed later this week includes the first currency chapter in a trade agreement. We also reached an understanding with South Korea on currency stability and transparency at the time of the update of CHORUS, Argentina's new IMF program includes a nominal monetary anchor and an important commitment to leaving currency intervention unsterilized. Those policies quickly stopped Argentina's mid-2018 currency crisis and they are dramatically reducing the rate of inflation. By expressly limiting the growth of the monetary base, a policy that the United States strongly supported, the central bank was able to arrest the precipitous decline in the exchange rate. Treasury also this year launched the America Cresce uh, initiative to promote growth in the Western Hemisphere. In 2018, we signed energy framework agreements uh, with Panama and Chile We expect to sign one with Jamaica tomorrow and hope to conclude one with Argentina in the near future. We've refocused the Financial Stability Board on its systemic risk mandate, including the adoption of an activities-based approach on insurance activities and wind-down of work streams unrelated to stability issues, and the evaluation of the effectiveness of existing policies before developing new policies. I served on the nominations committee for FSB leadership and was pleased with yesterday's announcement of Fed, Fed Vice Chairman Randy Quarles as the FSB's next chairman, the first American to serve in that role. Looking into 2019, we'll continue our work on debt transparency, the implementation of FIrma, the energy initiatives, and China's unfair trade practices and lack of reciprocity and market access. We maintain active economic dialogues with other countries to assess systemic vulnerabilities and to support democratic principles and institutions in latin america notably in the western hemisphere we've enf- emphasized the risks and challenges posed by the troika of tyranny namely venezuela cuba and uh, nicaragua as brexit approaches Treasury is analyzing risks to the international financial system. We're working toward improved trade arrangements with the EU. The administration has notified Congress on October 16th of its intent to start trade negotiations with the UK once it leaves the EU in March of 2019. And we continue to work to uh, streamline the G20. Uh, I'm going to uh, stop at this point and leave discussion of the issues to my State Department colleague, um, uh, Secretary De Marcellus. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Secretary Malpass. Secretary De Marcellus.
3: Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley. Uh, thank you so much for holding these hearings. It's certainly an honor to be here today, and a particular honor to testify with on Secretary Malpass. Uh, Senator, as you noted uh, in your opening statement. The United States was the leading force in establishing the World Bank and IMF. Uh, And though Treasury has the lead for the oversight of the the IFIs and national financial institutions, the State Department has been working closely with Treasury from the very beginning to be sure that these institutions advance our interests. We created them and we remain in the IFIs to advance our national security interests, our foreign policy interests, and our economic interests, as well as promoting the well-being of people globally. The question is sometimes asked, which is better, multilateral assistance or bilateral assistance? To me, it's like asking, when you build a house, which tool is better, the nail gun or the power drill? It really depends on the task at hand the, at that very moment. Now, we might use the nail gun or bilateral assistance more often, but you don't want to be the job site without the power drill. Now, that said, the tools can always be improved and reformed. And Under Secretary Malpass's written statement goes into excellent detail on the reforms that we're looking for across the IFIs, and we're very supportive of those. One advantage that the IFIs offer is the leveraging of resources, So their resources so far exceed our own because of the other donors, and as well as the access to capital markets. In addition, we can leverage the skills of the very talented staff at the IFIs, provide advice to developing countries around the world on issues like procurement, uh, uh, fiscal policy, anti-corruption or debt sustainability, and many other issues. I'd like to just focus on three areas where the IFIs advance our interests. One, by providing stability in strategically important areas, such as the Middle East. Two, by advancing our economic interests. And three, by offering a best practice alternative to the Chinese lending model. In terms of the Middle East, when our vital ally, Jordan, was threatened with Uh, massive refugee flows from Syria. It threatened to destabilize the country, so we turned to World Bank to help. The World Bank set up the uh, Global Concessional Finance Facility, or GCFF, to help pool funds to assist countries facing refugee flows, initially Jordan. So the United States put in so far $35 million to this fund. We were a founding donor. Other countries then followed our lead and put in so far another $244 million as of the middle of this year. Now, what happened is the World Bank and European Bank for Reconstruction and Development then extended loans that were low interest thanks to these contributions to help the Syrian refugees and their Jordanian host communities with clean water, education, health, job opportunities. So in sum, 35 million from us went to about one and a half billion in low interest support for. Key regional ally, Jordan. Now to, going to our economic interests. As you noted and the undersecretary have noted, the IMF and the banks, Zoland banks, have been working to advance prosperity around the world. So this creates better conditions for expanding the US and global economy, thus giving us larger markets for export so that support American jobs. America's fastest growing export markets now representing 40% of our exports, are in developing countries. The, the IFIs also help by promoting in these countries a climate a transparent business climate and helping to raise global procurement standards, fight corruption, and unleash private investment. This helps our companies compete better. Third, and lastly, the IFIs pro- promote and provide transparent financing terms. Offering these, as you noted, borrowers a better alternative for their people to the opaque terms and financing offered by China in their lending practices. This already led to unsustainable debt levels in several cases. The IMF is working alongside the World Bank, as Unsectors noted, to bring transparency to countries' external debts, helping to shed light on these and to counter these predatory lending practices. But in addition, as Senator Merkley uh, noted, The development banks employ policies aligned with American laws and American values to safeguard the environment and people. Unlike lenders with little to no regard for these standards, the banks require borrowing governments to address environmental social impacts associated with the projects. These requirements support sustainable development and lasting results. So in closing, I'd like to reemphasize the State Department's commitment to working with Treasury to ensure that the IFIs advance our national security, our foreign policy, and our economic interests globally. Over seven decades, this has benefited exporters and taxpayers, promoting American prosperity and security. We also appreciate Congress's interest, your engagement, and continued support on these issues. So thank you again for holding this hearing, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you both for. Um those, that helpful summary in fact you've you've preempted some of my sort of foundational questions but I I, I would like to begin with a bit of history here as as you did uh, Secretary De Marcellus um, indicating in your prepared testimony that the World Bank and IMF were uh, created through. US leadership uh, in large measure back in, in 1944 and um, the United States uh, was compelled because of uh, that unique moment in history uh, in which it found itself um, as, as we were nearing the end of a, a world war, uh, we had uh, suffered through a, a great depression. Um, do, do the lessons or, or dangers that were felt in 1944 still have some relevance to today as we think about uh, the appropriate role that the IMF and World Bank uh, are playing? Uh, Are they serving different needs uh, than uh, were felt
3: back in, in, in you know, 60 years ago, 70 years ago? Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, and I would invite Secretary Malpass to amplify on this, because he certainly has uh, very um, good insights on this question. Uh, I would say many of the issues remain the same at the macro level of building uh, economic prosperity, to advance the global economy and American interests. However, the world has changed. And uh, the focus at the time of creation was really on reconstructing Europe and our allies uh, in Western Europe. Now it's really more on poorer, developing countries who need more work on governance and uh, more foundational help, for instance, on health systems. The work that the World Bank does uh, to prevent pandemic health threats from hitting US shores in a country. It wouldn't have applied so much in 1944, but is now part of their work. Uh, uh, so and then of course we have um, something new in that China is an emerging donor but a large one, which is a new development we haven't seen at the same time. Uh, and as has been noted, uh, is a significant factor in the national system. Therefore, the IMF, World Bank, and other development banks have a new role, as as has been noted, by alternative, but also helping countries, borrowers, understand what's really at offer from China, helping them understand and analyze the terms. So there are many new ways and countless other ways that the uh, development banks and IMF have adjusted to time over the seven decades.
0: Uh, Secretary Molpas, so in addition to stability, Uh, With the example of the Middle East, more specifically the Jordan example, very, very powerful. Global prosperity, 40 percent of of, uh, our export markets, uh, as as Secretary de Marcellus indicated, are located in developing countries. And then lastly, an alternative to the opaque Chinese uh, model. Are there other rationales for these institutions that we should be thinking
2: about? Uh, in the uh, world bank we 've advocated a shift a graduation of countries from uh, being borrowers to not borrowing, and that way leaving more resources for poorer countries so one of the things going on now is the conflict state uh, problem or the the fragile state problem where uh, where the uh, multi where both the IMF and the multilateral development banks have some expertise in uh, uh, in in helping those situations, so one of the goals is to get the focus of the of the organizations toward those uh, those needier countries or weaker governments.
0: Very very good, um, Secretary Malpass. How do you believe the IMF and World Bank are doing in fulfilling uh, their missions? You you've itemized a whole lot of reforms that the administration has already. Well, on its way, you know, fairly deeply involved in at the executive level. Uh, maybe you could identify uh, the leading couple of reforms that you believe need to occur, how the United States should be using its voice and its vote to advance those reforms, and then if you have an opportunity to, to reflect on how Congress might provide additional authorities or assistance on any of these
2: fronts. Um, please volunteer that uh, to us. Uh, Thank you, Senator. I'll make uh, three areas of uh, comment. One is how different the world financial environment is today from when the institutions were founded. So there's much more availability of private capital, often, uh, 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 and, and countries have been able to build local currency uh, uh, financing structures, which simply didn't exist uh, prior to, really prior to 1990. Uh, and so that's a sea change, a seismic shift in the way the, uh, the institutions uh, operate. So the reforms that we've uh, encouraged in them uh, are are this graduation concept, so to stop lending to countries that don't really need the money, to have differential pricing in the loans, so that so that uh, better better-off countries pay more in interest uh, for the loans that they're doing, to have a uh, increased focus on the quality of the loans uh, and the uh, transparency of those loans, uh, and then I would also say in the in the World Bank. Uh, capital increase that is uh, uh, that has recently been been uh, uh, been, been complete uh, been uh, agreed agreed on by by the member countries uh, that there was there was a substantial focus on creating a sustainable lending concept so that means that the the world bank would not suddenly lend a lot at the beginning of a capital cycle and then need more money as it goes along. So the hope is that this will uh, create a sustainable platform where they won't have to keep having capital increases. So from the standpoint then of the IMF, I'll mention uh, uh, I'll mention three reforms that we've been working on there. One is uh, with regard to fiscal policy, um, making it more growth-oriented. In, 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 in some decades, uh, the tendency was to think of it as uh, a repayment mechanism from countries that had gotten over-indebted. Uh, and so one of the shifts we're looking for is to have it be more integrally involved in creating a higher median income for the country that it's working in. A second is the uh, type of privatizations being done. Sometimes in the past, there would be a ten- tendency and uh, emphasis on selling assets from the government for the highest price, rather than thinking of it as the greatest benefit to the, to the nation's growth. And you can often get more benefit by stopping a monopoly rather than selling a monopoly for the highest price to the, uh, to the high bidder. And the third that I'll mention is we're no longer on the gold standard. That was one of the formative uh, p- purposes of the IMF. Uh, and so in, in that regard, there needs to be and the IMF is still under Article I uh, seeking sta- stability of exchange rates rather than uh, competitive devaluation. So I mentioned in my opening remarks that uh, thrust of administration policy. So uh, as far as what Congress can do in in this, uh, I think holding this hearing is is very good. And then uh, being engaged in thinking about these policies, this is truly a seismic shift in global finance toward uh, uh, toward a a global situation where capital is available, where countries are, uh, uh, are, are implementing good policies. And so in that regard, Congress can uh, both be aware, be knowledgeable, and be engaged in encouraging that effort. My goal, one of my goals, is to see quite a few more countries, let's say five or ten more countries, growing really fast as we go into 2019 and 2020.
0: Well, thank you. That's helpful. uh, this senator, I, I know Senator Merkley uh, intends in to stay engaged on these issues, and, and uh, if there are some concrete things we can do to be of assistance to help you as, as you walk your way through these reforms, please let us know. Before I
2: S- Senator, I'm yes. sorry. If I may interrupt. One thing I forgot to mention. Yes. You know, we are bound by a great number of mandates from Congress, legislative mandates. There are nearly 100. Uh, and. While we we share many of the goals of many of the mandates, the cost of managing those is actually substantial. We bear a lot at Treasury. The State Department bears a substantial cost to managing those mandates, which tend not to expire. So these may be things that made sense 20 years ago that don't need to be on the books now. So taking a look at that would help us a lot.
0: Well, we right. will require your expertise and assistance and that of your team, but uh, I would request that uh, you identify those 100, 100-plus 100 mandates, um, indicate uh, how precisely they impede your ability uh, to advance reforms and, and uh, open markets, uh, enhance stability, and uh, present an alternative to China in the case of the, the uh, uh, World Bank, um, and uh, let us know how we can be helpful. we'd we'd like to take a look at that and and work together on a bipartisan basis. But before I turn it over to Senator Merkley, and and, uh, I'll give you due time to ask all that's on your mind, Jeff, um, I just would like, for for my own benefit and for all uh, of those who are watching, uh, Secretary DeMarcellus, you mentioned leveraging $35 million in the case of Jordan. 35 US dollars, as I understood it, into one and a half billion dollars um, through use of, of IFIs. Can you walk me through exactly how
3: that works? Uh, thank you, Senator. I'd be very happy to. Uh, so, the Jordan is, uh, since it's a higher income country, does not qualify for low interest loans from the World Bank. Uh, Therefore, when they took on all of these refugees, we and they didn't think it was fair for them to take market-based loans for people from another country. Uh, And it would be hard for them to sell to Jordanian people uh, that they were gonna take market-based loans. They really needed lower interest loans. Uh, So what we did was set up this fund where donors, so our 35 million plus the 244 from others, would go and basically buy down the interest rate on these loans, turning what would be a normal loan the World Bank into a discount, uh, very low interest loan, which is more appropriate to the need and to recognition of Jordan's contributions uh, to managing this uh, horrible humanitarian situation. So what it does is basically um, by paying off the interest, you're able to leverage that much larger amount. So that's how you get from 35 million up to almost um, 300 million in total donors and then you take that to, take the entire loan amount down down to this rate. That's how you get to one point five billion billion.
0: Thank you much. Senator Merkley.
1: Uh, thank you both very much. Um, so I wanted to start with a letter that a group of senators sent on August 16th that asked this question about whether IMF funds are essentially being used to repay Chinese debt. And to give you an example of this, uh, Pakistan is a good example of a country that has a significant amount of Chinese investment. I think the number I have is $62 billion. They owe a lot of money back to China, Chinese banks, and they're seeking an IMF bailout I think it's a $12 billion bailout, and they have asked the U.S. to make sure that we don't block this. Is that IMF money essentially going to help Pakistan repay Chinese banks? Why is that a good economic development strategy?
2: Senator, uh, I don't think that would be a good uh, development strategy. And so, we're, uh, the the IMF uh, team just came back from Pakistan. I had uh, people in Pakistan two two weeks ago. Uh, uh, one of the things we're pushing hard for is full transparency of the debt. You mentioned uh, Chinese debt, but one of the one of the uh, 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 challenges is they haven't disclosed the terms of uh, the, in in many cases they haven't disclosed the terms of that debt. That means the interest rate, the maturity, uh, and 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 when it would have to be repaid. In general terms, uh, the we think that the Chi- the maturity of the Chinese debt it comes after the IMF would have been repaid. So from the standpoint of 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 uh, IMF money being used to pay Chinese money, I, I, I would say uh, a, a challenge is to find a program that uh, will cause substantial economic reform in Pakistan uh, and that will uh, allow it to be funded, um, uh, that Pakistan be funded and be in a, in, 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 have an ability to survive in financial terms uh, going forward. Um, And I'll take this moment to say with China in general, this problem is not unique to Pakistan. Uh, China is lending in many countries where the terms of the loans are simply not given. And that gives China a lot of uh, leverage within its uh, program. And it's something that we're uh, pushing back on very hard in in the Paris Club, in the OECD, in the IMF, the World Bank at the G20 and in the G7.
1: So when you say the terms are not given, do you mean not given to the borrower or not given to the international community?
2: In some cases, both. But it, 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 so they're not made public, they're not available to the, to the uh, uh, international committee, but sometimes they're not even available to certain parts inside the government itself. And that's, a, that's an issue uh, uh, because China may make a loan but not really want the terms of the loan to be disclosed even within the government that it's lending to.
1: So Senator Young and I both refer to this Chinese debt trap strategy. And I'm just going to restate it simply and see if you all concur that this is their strategy or if we're perhaps mischaracterizing the situation. But China often lends to developing countries that Uh, may have an interest in a particular building a port, building a highway, building a prestige project of of some sort that involves a significant amount of debt. They often use their own workers, that is Chinese workers, to build the 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 project. Uh, It's often very opaque in terms of the 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 terms. Uh, The um, often involves a uh, and these are not gifts but 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 these are Chinese loans so therefore Repayment is necessary. Uh, the government is often reluctant to disclose the terms without transparency. So perhaps the, the country is getting a very poor deal. And um, the result is now China has significant leverage uh, to uh, to apply for other national interests that China has. Is that a fair characterization of the Chinese debt trap model?
2: Is this? Uh, I, I uh, share many of those concerns. Y- yes, sir. And- so, uh, I'll give you an example where China then does not work with the international community on s- some of these. Uh, there's a, an, a group called the International Working Group on Export Credits, where there's an effort to have disclosure of the export credits that are, that are going to, to countries, such as countries in Africa or to Pakistan. Uh, China simply uh, has, has stood aside from that group. They attend meetings. But then don't engage to to uh, describe which of their institutions are making those loans. Um, and a second is the Paris Club itself, where China is the is now in for for many countries in the world. China is the biggest creditor, and yet it doesn't participate in the the Paris Club, which is an organization of creditor countries that tries to have rationality within the. Uh, the restructuring process when a country uh, basically can't, can't repay. So we've, so I'm, I'm, I'm describing constructive ways that China could be better involved and yet simply has chosen not to be. Should, should, yes. oh, please go ahead, yes.
3: No, if I could uh, yeah, add so to that, um, one of the most prominent examples of what you've described is uh, in Sri Lanka, the Hambantota port where after uh, Sri Lanka couldn't pay the debts, uh, China converted the uh, port uh, to their own ownership for 99-year lease, as well as 15,000 acres of land. Uh, But when that happened, that was noticed around the world. Uh, And we hear about it all over the world. And so you've seen, that become a campaign issue in many elections around the world, where opposition groups are criticizing the volume of Chinese lending and the terms and all of the other drawbacks that you've already elaborated. Uh, so in Malaysia, we saw President, uh, Prime Minister Mahathir canceling billions of dollars of uh, Chinese projects. In the Maldives, uh, a new government re- ran against basically Chinese lending and won, and they are now opening up the Chinese books. In fact, there's was press this morning that they discovered that some of the Chinese projects were ran massively up in cost overruns, so like triple the price, market price for a hospital. Uh, in Africa, Sierra Leone, the new government criticized Chinese landing and then canceled airport project. Uh, it was three hundred million dollars on, on the rational basis that the existing airport wasn't fully utilized. Uh, Burma scaled back a port from seven point three billion to one point three billion. Uh, so we, we see this happening more and more. I think countries are beginning to notice the downside and they're getting more savvy. Um, I don't want to um, overstate it that these governments will not go back to China for more loans, but we think they are getting more sophisticated when they do it. Um, but then, going to your your earlier statement where you held up the book, the debt trap. You, know, when the IMF and the West overlent in many cases and built up debt burdens in the developing world, we dealt with it. We owned up to it. We did debt forgiveness. So by the same token, if China makes the same types of mistakes we might have made 45 years ago, uh, we would look to them to some sort of forgiveness to for these countries so they aren't saddled with debt forever, uh, crippling them. Uh, so I think that's something that uh, that the entire world would like to see. Uh, so, but thank you for raising that issue. It's certainly one of, of intense interest.
1: One of the, the, the reasons it was such a, a problem was corruption. So there would be an IMF loan to a government where the elite would essentially funnel off massive amounts of the loan, and the remaining amount of the money and its development project couldn't possibly generate enough economic development to pay the loan back. So it was a bad investment. And then the terms of the IMF agreement were essentially that to pay back the loan you had to engage in austerity, so you had an elite that now had been super enriched by this deal because of the corruption. And you had a population that was now suffering the austerity necessary to try to find some path to pay it back, which was not a good deal for the people of, of, of the country. And as you say, we wrestled with it. We've, we, we have transparency around it. We had an academic debate. We had an institutional debate. I'm not sure that those mechanisms, in fact, I'm quite sure those mechanisms are not present in the Chinese consideration of, of the impact of their debt trap. It seems to me, this is a, a, a case uh, where there, there, it's a deliberate strategy to create uh, leverage rather than a strategy gone awry, if, if you will, which if it's a deliberate strategy, you don't necessarily have any plan to, or desire to remedy it. As you point out in Sri Lanka, For 99 years, they have a massive port owned. I I know I've heard from the national security side, our concern is it might also become a military base outpost uh, for for China. And so I'm wondering as we push to kind of draw attention to this strategy, are there other things that we should consider doing? For example, should we push for a policy in the IMF and World Bank that no loan, no grant project will go to any country that doesn't have complete transparency for its international borrowing.
2: Uh, Senator, those those are uh very good points. So we are within the debt initiative, the transparency initiative that I mentioned in my remarks, we're working in the uh, IMF and the World Bank to encourage them to include terms in loans. So when they do make a loan to a country, say that the country is expected to make transparent all of the lending that it gets, otherwise you'd be the lender into a situation where someone else has better terms than you do so um, that, that there's and then with within that framework we're also trying to make sure that we're talking about debt in a broadly construed context because one of the things that happens, financial markets are very innovative, so as soon as you find one loophole that you're that you're closing, then there, there's an ability to find another. And one of the things going on is uh, the the promise of collateral or of uh, 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 payments in kind in future years. So the so China will make a loan to a country in dollars or in 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 real currency today, and then commit that country, get that country, someone in the country to get, commit to ship them oil for the next 15 years. Well, that takes money from the people of the country and puts it in the pockets of the elite in the in the near term. So we're, uh, Secretary Mnuchin's uh, initiative on that, which we discuss in the G20, the G7, and have made substantial progress on, is, is uh, exactly in line with that. And I think uh, uh, Congress can, can be insistent as countries kind of look for alternatives, they often come to Congress and say, can't you finance us? we're in, we're in uh, trouble, saying, look, at a minimum, there's gotta be full transparency of whatever debt you're taking on.
1: Thank you.
0: Mr. Marcellas, in your prepared statement, uh, you wrote about uh, the transparent financing terms practiced by multilateral development banks, and you contrasted that with the opaque terms uh, that uh, some of the bilateral uh, lending, uh, particularly with China, uh, we see around the world. Uh, And you indicated that has in turn led to sovereign debt, uh, which creates uh, global uh, financial fragility and instability. Uh, You've also referred to predatory uh, lending practices by some countries, particularly China, he discussed actions in Sri Lanka in particular, Malaysia is another country. The Vice President of the United States uh, just recently said infrastructure loans to governments across the Indo-Pacific too often come with strings attached and lead to staggering debt. IMF Managing Director Lagarde, with whom I met this morning, has also expressed concern regarding a pl- problematic increase in debt, potentially limiting other spending as debt service rises and creating balance of payment challenges. Uh, Mr. Undersecretary, how is the U.S. specifically using its voice, its vote, and leverage in international financial institutions to encourage more transparency from China in its projects in the developing world? as well as an end to the imposition of unsustainable debt arrangements on developing countries. And Mr. Malpass, if, if you prefer to chime in, um, please feel at liberty. I'll start and-
3: yep, Go ahead, Ron. He can amplify. Uh, if you'd no, like to privately
0: confer for a moment <laughs> and then respond uh, no, collectively, that's also falter. okay.
3: No, no, it's- uh, <laughs> As the Vice President said, uh, there are are problems there. Some Chinese loans are linked to resource extraction. Some appear to jeopardize country sovereignty. Uh, Some burden countries with unsustainable debt. Some have adverse environmental impacts. Many are implemented by Chinese SOEs and Chinese labor. Uh, Most appear not to be commercially viable, and then almost none are transparent. So we have to address all of those. On the transparency, as Dr. Malpass uh, described, uh, working through the G20 and within the IMF and World Bank, we're working on greater uh, debt sustainability frameworks for low-income countries. So when they go into low-income country, they have to have a full picture. Uh, and uh, Managing Director Lagarde has recognized this and has been very clear on the need for transparency uh, when the IFIs go in. Uh, because you know when we Western donors or the IFIs lend, that's not linked to resource extraction, They are weighed against that sustainability frameworks, the information shared with IMF, and getting to the point earlier about these non-commercially viable projects. And as Under Secretary Malpass stressed earlier, what's new in the world is the private sector. So the best option is the private sector building these projects, and when they do it, they are darn sure it's commercially viable. Uh, So you don't get that problem. So, so
0: just following up right. on that briefly, how can the US better, uh, more effectively catalyze private investment in the developing world?
3: Well, I think uh, Congress has helped us to a great degree with the BUILD Act and the new uh, Development Finance Corporation. I Thank you for all your action on that. It's going to be able to give us new tools to try to fill the gap. It can't replace and should not replace the private sector, but if there are gaps, to get the private sector off the sidelines. Uh, and they're also, um, and I'll defer to Unsecretary Secretary Malpass uh, as well for any more detail, but at the G20, we're working on trying to develop um, infrastructure as an asset class for institutional investors to, again, get the very large institutional money off the sidelines to build this infrastructure. Uh, and then within the Indo-Pacific strategy, within that region, Secretary Pompeo announced a series of initiatives in power and digital and uh, just general infrastructure to try to work with our private sector, and again, have our whole government work with them to try to fill the gaps. If there's a regulation that has to be fixed, if there's uh, you know some other element that needs to be addressed to help the private sector get engaged, just be there on the ground, through our embassies, the Commerce Department, Treasury, USAID.
0: Sort of wrap around services, as it were. Correct. Yes. Mr. Malpas. I'll add to those uh, uh, points. Well,
2: I'll, I'll add to those. Uh, i i wanted to give a concrete example so with uh as a country gets over indebted uh it, it it typically has gone to the paris club as i mentioned earlier that china has has uh uh has not accepted the invitation to be in the paris club and so it's the biggest creditor and i'll mention one specific country congo brazzaville uh the 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 uh has in recent years borrowed way too much money. Much of it was borrowed from China. Um, the problem is that other countries can't then lend or or, or even make, uh, private sector certainly doesn't want to invest into Congo Brazzaville while there's this overhang of Chinese debt. Uh, but China won't say how much it thinks it's owed and the country itself also doesn't know the terms and 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 uh, uh, isn't able to say how much it's owed. And further, China doesn't have a process to reschedule or to forgive uh, that debt. As uh, as Secretary De Marcellus was saying, that there's there's not uh, the the uh, the developed countries uh, have a technique for when a country really has failed to to uh, forgive that debt and let the country start to rebuild. China has rejected that as a, as a process. Y- yes, sir, Senator?
0: Well, so um, this is instructive. In the second panel, uh, Ms. Siegel, in, in her prepared testimony, noted China's reluctance to participate in, in certain international arrangements, uh, the Paris Club in particular. And on the Paris Club website, China's listed as an ad hoc participant, not a permanent member. So for those who may not be familiar with it, what is the Paris Club? Why does it matter? And what explains Chinese reluctance to become an official member of the Paris Club?
2: Uh, Yes, sir. Um, Well, and I'll use, I myself have, have not been to the Paris Club, though I know some about it from my previous stint at Treasury and now my current stint, it's under my purview. It is a group of creditors uh, that meets in Paris of official creditors. So that would be, for example, the export-import kinds of banks around the world, uh, the, uh, uh, the the military lending that goes, that goes on and other forms of official credit. So they sit down when a country has failed. It's almost like in my very lay terms, it's almost like a bankruptcy process process, where a country is is unable to pay, then the creditors get together and think about what to do. And oftentimes that means extending the terms of loans or actually uh, organizing the forgiveness of debt. So as an ad hoc member, China uh, was invited, and this has been going on uh, for, for several years, predates the current administration. They They sit in the same room with other creditors. They listen to the disclosure of data. It would almost be like you could go and sit in a bankruptcy proceeding and hear everybody else's debt, but you don't tell the group what you you are owed by that that company. Uh, And so the country country then um, works with the creditors. China hears the information. So what's been done in recent meetings these um, they meet monthly. So in recent meetings, uh, the the rest of the world has asked China to step out of the room when uh, when certain debts are discussed because China, by not participating, it needs to be excluded from the group. And we're now at the point where we we the U.S. have suggested to the other participants in the Paris Club that China not be invited to future meetings if it's not going to participate in a given in a given. Uh, discussion. So it's it's a disclosure issue where they could be playing a constructive role in the world. They're the biggest creditor in many countries, and they should be doing this, but have declined. Uh,
0: just very briefly, uh, this, this subcommittee hearing is on multilateral economic institutions and U.S. foreign policy once again. Um, So many of the challenges and concerns that um, many of us vocalize with respect to China and its predatory economic practices are shared by our G7 partners, by G20 member countries. And I I just would would like your thoughts. You can give us a letter grade or your qualitative assessment of how the United States is doing on a multilateral basis and working with other countries to address uh,
2: these concerns and these predatory practices, uh, you know, I'll give us a B plus or an A minus, and the reason for that, while there's a lot of criticism of the U.S. for trying to uh, stop international activity, the reality is we the 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 Trump administration, but the U.S. government as a whole is a is a leader in almost all of the international organizations that are going on, leading in a direction of more freedom of higher per capita incomes, better economic growth. And the way to do that doesn't mean that we want the organizations to spend more money. In fact, one of the things that I've tried to get us to do is have these multilateral bodies have a lot fewer meetings and less talk and more action within them. And we've been somewhat successful in the G20, in the, G20, uh, in, in, the uh, uh, in the OECD framework and in other frameworks in scaling back their work streams. I mentioned the Financial Stability Board, FSB, early in my remarks.
0: Thank you, I'm, I'm gonna give Senator Merkley uh, uh, allow him to close out this uh, panel and, and thank you gentlemen
1: So I was uh, reading that the World Bank has some 60 billion of projects in in China and uh, I was thinking about that as I've seen China evolve from my first trip there uh, an economy based on bicycles to uh, another trip with a few more ring roads around Beijing and and uh and a system uh, choked with cars, to yet another trip uh, where I witnessed uh, massive new metro systems and 200 mile per hour train system. Uh, Should we still be sending development loans to China?
2: Uh, In my view, no. Uh, In the World Bank reforms that have been uh, Put on the table, and the World Bank management has committed to this year. Uh, they will be winding down, graduating China from IBRD lending. That's the that's the uh, part of the World Bank that's that's currently still lending to uh, to China. However, the Asian Development Bank still uh, lends and plans to uh, uh, continue lending, and could, I think, substantially. Scale back and discontinue that lending. Uh, so I agree with your the thrust of your point, Senator Merkley. I, I, and not to defend, but I would say these. It, while and to Senator Young's uh, very good question, uh, how are we? How is the U.S. engaged in these? We can. State reforms and really push hard for them, but it's but in a lot of cases we don't have control of the organizations and they don't want to go in the direction that we're that we're indicating. With regard to China, final point is uh, the the world community is pretty much in line now, recognizing that China has been taking advantage of the system. So there's actually good support within the G7 and even in the G20 and bigger, bigger bodies that China's got to change and got to s- stop taking these loans as, as uh, so, uh, wind down its borrowing from the institutions.
1: And finally, last, last Friday, the Trump administration released its National Climate Assessment that uh, got a lot of attention, despite being released the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, because it laid out the already massive damage that's happening in the U.S. due to climate chaos and how those impacts will accelerate over the years to come. Uh, Should our international institutions uh, of lending adopt a strategy of uh, only financing or primarily financing a renewable energy strategies, non-carbon burning strategies, given the grave consequences we are are facing from carbon pollution. In
2: in in most cases, the organizations try to have high quality projects that are transparent uh, and that where there are uh environmental assessments as appropriate for the projects uh, the the projects are aimed uh, at uh, helping the people of the country uh, it, get forward in terms of uh, the availability of energy, uh, the availability of of even heating in, in certain countries. So I I would say the policy structure as I mentioned before, we have nearly a hundred, uh, congressional mandates, many of which, maybe the majority, are aimed at environmental practices within the multilateral development banks. So I don't know that additional, uh, lead, I, I, I don't think additional legislation is uh, is needed in this regard. I would say that uh, projects are monitored uh, and uh, Uh, There's a a substantial amount of evaluation done of environmental impacts now. Thank you.
1: A lengthy answer, (laughs) Uh, avoiding the core point of the question, but thank you. Thank you, sir.
0: Well, I I thank you, gentlemen, for your time, your testimony, and your service. Uh, Note that uh, I plan to keep the hearing record open for 48 hours, and I'd appreciate you both submitting timely responses to any questions that may have been submitted for the record in my absence when I had to step out for a couple of minutes. Uh, Thanks again for being here today. If your schedules permit you to stay for the second panel, I, of course, would welcome you to do so. However, I understand if your schedules require you to depart. Uh, This concludes the first panel. We'll now take a few moments to transition and permit panel number two witnesses to take their positions. Our second panel today consists of five former um, uh, members of uh, previous administrations and expert witnesses and I thank all of you for being here today. The Honorable Clay Lowry, a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development, who has also served as Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the Treasury Department from 2005 to 2009. Mr. Scott Morris, Senior Fellow and Director of the U.S. Development Policy Program at the Center for Global Development. He also previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Development Finance and Debt at the U.S. Treasury from 2009 through 2012. Ms. Jennifer Hillman, Professor from Practice, Georgetown Law Center. Ms. Taya Lee, President of the Economic Policy Institute. And Ms. Stephanie Siegel, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of the Simon Chair in Political Economy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I welcome each of you. Thank you again for being here. Your full written statements will be included in the record. I'd ask each of you to summarize your written statement within five minutes so we can engage in an extended Q and A, and conclude the hearing around 4.30. So that's roughly 45 minutes from now. Why don't we go in the order that I announced you, once again,
4: Mr. Lowry. Uh, Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, thank you for the opportunity to testify on the multilateral economic institutions in U.S. foreign policy. I'm gonna skip the portion that I had about the uh, uh, the multilateral economic institutions, I think the government witnesses covered it very well, about the reforms that are needed, as well as the importance to our national interests. So when thinking about these institutions in terms of our foreign policy, the committee asked in particular about the U.S. relations with China, as we heard in some of the debate earlier. So I begin with the Trump administration's national security strategy that refers to China as a strategic competitor. Through its Section 301 investigation and other actions, the administration has gone even further and accused China of being an unfair competitor. And this analysis, to me, seems fair, fair and accurate. But to compete, the U.S. should not just criticize, it needs to have an affirmative strategy. And this starts with emphasizing U.S. strengths and seizing opportunities to demonstrate better U.S. alternatives. And our strengths, in my opinion, start with one, our model of the private sector, not government support, leading the way. And two, our deep and long-standing relationships with allies around the world who share our values and our ideals, not just having transactional arrangements. So while China may have spent a trillion dollars in its Belt and Road Initiative over the last five years, I think it is far more important that just in the Indo-Pacific region alone, the U.S. has over $1.4 trillion in trade annually and invested over $900 billion in the region as of 2017. These are U.S. strengths, and we should use official tools, whether bilateral or multilateral, to highlight and leverage such strengths. This is why I think the Trump administration and Congress, particularly this committee, deserve praise for rethinking OPIC and strengthening it through the BUILD Act. The closest multilateral model to this approach is the International Finance Corporation, which is the window at the World Bank that finances productive, private enterprises in the least developed countries. To work in riskier countries, the IFC is probably going to need to issue more capital. And so recently, IFC shareholders, including the United States, reached agreement that will allow the IFC to increase significantly its investments in the poorest countries and the most fragile countries, while the U.S. will not have to provide any new money to this and still retain its veto power. This deal strikes me as a solid accomplishment by the Trump administration. On the other hand, the Trump administration has taken a number of steps that undermine the strengths of the United States, and I'll just name two. First was walking away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There is no other way to put it. This was reckless and a gift to China. Instead of helping to establish higher standards and better market access for our private sector, we are stuck trying to cobble together bilateral deals that appear to rely on a model of managed trade. Second, The administration has not taken advantage of building a coalition to confront China, but has instead threatened to impose tariffs on our closest allies on the laughable justification that importing automobiles threatens our national security. In other words, rather than making China the outlier because of its behavior, the administration's unpredictability and unreliability on trade could cost us allies that we need to address the real challenges posed by China. So this leads me to my last point, which is what can Congress do? To supplement the strong bipartisan work that Congress did on establishing the International Development Finance Corporation, Congress should also work with the administration on the multilateral economic institutions. Let's just take the World World Bank as an example. I see three areas of action for Congress. First approve and fund the capital increase for the IBRD. Second, authorize the capital increase for the IFC, which is not going to cost any money in our appropriations, and third, work with the administration on Uh, the upcoming 2019 Ida replenishment. And finally, while this hearing is not about international trade, this committee may want to consider asserting its role on U.S. trade policy, particularly as it concerns China. I would encourage the committee to press the administration to develop and share its end goal for the current trade war, or at least a framework agreement that would address the legitimate concerns with China's trade practices. Thank you. I'm happy to field any questions.
0: Plenty to follow
4: up on there.
0: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Lowry. Uh, I'm gonna go down the line with your indulgence. I had indicated I I would go in the order in which I I introduced you, but uh, you're not seated in that order. So, uh, Ms. Hillman.
5: Well, thank you very much. That makes it a lot easier on all of us. Uh, Thank you, Chairman Young and Senator Merkley. I very much appreciate the opportunity to appear before you, particularly at this time when the international economic order that, as Chairman Young mentioned, the United States worked so hard uh, to create and nurture is at such a critical inflection point. I think with the United States in particular headed down a potentially dangerous, unilateral, and isolationist road. The major problem, I think, with the approach that we're taking is that the problems that we are confronting, whether that's the struggle around the world for good jobs that pay a living wage, whether that's climate change, whether that's the widening of the wealth gap or the rise of extremism and threats to national security, these are not problems that can be isolated or solved by the United States alone. These are increasingly complex problems that overlap with one another and that will require global solutions. And yet these problems are arising at a time when our international economic institutions are under siege. Um, they are being responding to a backlash from globalization. They're being attacked from outdated mandates that do not address the 21st century problems that they need to deal with and they're being questioned in terms of their effectiveness, their relevance and their legitimacy. I would say the crisis is the most acute at the World Trade Organization and yet the United States needs the United States more than ever if we are to take on China. Why the crisis at the WTO? While there are a number of sources of frustration outlined in my written testimony, I'll mention just two. First, there is a lack of balance at the WTO between the weak Negotiating arm of the WTO, with members having reached only one agreement on trade facilitation since 1995, compared to the very strong, some would say even too strong, uh, dispute settlement arm of the WTO, while the executive part of it is viewed as highly competent but lacking in the authority to drive any meaningful change. And it's this lack of balance that appears to be the primary driver for the United States' decision to. Block any process to reappoint members of the WTO's appellate body so we are now down to just the bare minimum of three members sitting on that appellate body and any even discussion about how to put new members on the appellate body has been blocked by the by the United States. Um, Secondly I'll mention a recent willingness led by the United States to impose tariffs Um, that violate the WTO's basic rules, which leads many to question what's the point of having a rules-based organization if its major members regularly flout those rules. So I believe it's critical that the WTO and its WTO dispute settlement system be fixed immediately, as the United States needs to take the WTO path if it's going to fix the problems that we have with China. And in my view, that's what ought to happen, is that we ought to be bringing a big and bold case based on a coalition of countries working together to take on China. Why? First, it represents the best opportunity to bring enough leverage together by the trading interests of the coalition to to put sufficient pressure on China to make it clear that fundamental reform is needed. Second, a comprehensive WTO case would restore confidence in the WTO and the rules of the trading system. Third, in the past, countries have been reluctant to take on China for fear of retaliation, but a broad coalition-based case would lessen the likelihood that China would or could effectively retaliate against all of the trading partners that would be in this coalition. Fourth, the evidentiary burdens of bringing a case against China because of its lack of transparency are formidable, but a coalition case would allow you to pool all of the evidence that's been being collected against China from the United States, the European Union, Japan, Canada, and others. And finally, WTO cases have already been tried, but with limited success. The problem is that the challenges were narrow, limited to a few Chinese measures, or to a particular industry or set of producers. No panel has yet been requested to rule on the Chinese system as a whole. And that's what I would recommend, uh, that there be a WTO case to hold China to the specific commitments that it made when it joined the WTO, as well as a broad overarching, what is referred to as a non-violation case that would basically say, China, you promised when you became a member of the WTO, that you would become a market-oriented economy, and you have not done so. If anything, you have gone the other way. And you would bring a case at the WTO that says, A, you're violating that basic overarching notion of being a market economy, and B, you're violating, and I've laid out in my written testimony, 12 very specific commitments that you made that you are now violating. And my own view would be if you bring this kind of big, bold coalition case against China, that will be the best way to result in the big structural reforms that we really need to see um, within China and that we ought to use the multilateral institution of the WTO and use the leverage and the power that it creates with its binding dispute settlement mechanism to be the best tool that we can engage in
6: uh, to take on China.
0: Thank you, Ms. Hillman. Ms. Lee.
6: Thank you, Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, for the invitation to participate in today's important hearing. Today's hearing provides an opportunity to review U.S. engagement with multilateral economic institutions and the importance of both using our influence in those institutions strategically and balancing international engagement with the use of appropriate unilateral tools and domestic policies. I would argue that past U.S. trade policy has failed American workers, as well as many domestic producers, and has undermined democratic decision-making authority with respect to environmental and consumer protections. Going forward, Congress and the executive branch should articulate and implement a new approach to global economic integration, one that prioritizes good jobs and strong communities and that supports domestic democratic decision-making where possible. This strategy is most likely to succeed if implemented with the cooperation and support of key allies and the multilateral economic institutions, as I think both Mr. Lowry and Ms. Hillman Uh, discussed. Enforceable multilateral rules are essential to a well-functioning global system, but the WTO, the organization tasked with defining those rules, has struggled in recent years to achieve consensus on new rules and to enforce existing rules. For American workers, the WTO has often appeared to be an obstacle to a reformed trade policy. First, WTO rules are lopsided towards corporate investors over those of workers towards corporate interests over those of workers, consumers, and the environment. Investors' rights are prominently protected by provisions on investment, financial flows, and intellectual property rights, among others, while protections for workers' rights are almost completely absent. The WTO has failed to address systematic currency manipulation or misalignment, as well as the use of permissive tax laws to attract investment. I would argue that both of these are key areas where multilateral trade rules ought to be available and enforceable. The U.S. government has not used its considerable clout at the WTO to press for deep reforms along these lines. Even if it were to do so, it would only succeed if it were able to build a coalition with other industrialized countries and key developing and emerging nations. But perhaps the current moment of stalemate and rising tension could be an opportunity to build such a coalition. Second, with respect to enforcement, the United States has not been able to manage its trade relationship with China effectively since China's accession to the WTO. The U.S. goods trade deficit with China hit $375 billion in 2017, up from $83 billion in 2001. The growth of the trade deficit with China during this period was responsible for the loss of 3.4 million U.S. jobs in all 50 states and in every congressional district. Nearly three-fourths of the jobs lost were in manufacturing. And that's one of the reasons why getting trade policy right is so important. The jobs displaced by flawed trade policy are, for the most part, manufacturing jobs which provide excellent wages and benefits, especially compared with jobs in the service sector. EPI research has shown that the wage-suppressing effects of our poor approach to globalization and trade have hit all workers without college degrees across the country, not just those in manufacturing who have lost jobs directly to import competition. These widespread wage impacts are more significant in the aggregate than the more concentrated losses in directly trade-impacted sectors. The key elements of needed trade policy reform include the following. First of all, address currency misalignment. The U.S. must abandon our strong dollar dogma and target a currency that allows for a manageable and stable trade deficit. We should also ensure that our tax and spending policies are in line with a sustainable value for the dollar. Last year's tax bill and spending policies contributed to a higher-value dollar, which is one reason why our trade deficit is growing. The WTO and the IMF have not provided any support or guidance for addressing currency misalignment, despite the fact that each of those organizations, in principle, has some jurisdiction in that area. In the medium and long term, the U.S. government should seek to strengthen and clarify currency tools at both the WTO and the IMF. Ultimately, the goal should be to bring countries to the table to negotiate a new plaza accord, as was last done in 1985. This is the single most effective way to rebalance global trade flows and supportive action from the multilateral economic institutions could be crucial in incentivizing such a deal. (coughs) We should make access to the US market contingent on respect and enforcement of internationally recognized core labor rights. The WTO in in particular must recognize that violation of core workers' rights is as much an unfair trade policy as the violation of patents or copyrights. And finally, we need to develop and commit to a concrete economic plan to help workers in America, focusing on skills, workforce development, job quality, infrastructure, clean energy transition, and expanding a strong social safety net. We need a tax system that supports this plan, but our current system rewards capital over labor and outsourcing over domestic production. It remains riddled with unproductive loopholes, and especially after last year's change as it fails to raise adequate revenue to fund needed investments. We must ensure that American workers and businesses have the tools and skills they need to compete successfully in a dynamic global economy. Thank you for your attention. I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you, Ms. Lee. Mr. Morris. Uh,
7: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Senator
6: Merkley. Um,
7: Let me start by saying I very much agree with the case that's been made in particular for the Multilateral Development Bank, so I'm not going to repeat in any detail what we've already heard. I do want to say, though, on these institutions, um, I want to make the point that U.S. leadership depends on our willingness to continue to provide financial support. Um, So the administration's support for the capital increase of the World Bank is a positive move, in my view. And while the capital increase does not benefit the poorest countries, it will support many countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, where the U.S. is. U.S. has important interests and ties. At the same time, the administration has scaled back support for the MDB's efforts in the poorest countries. These cuts diminish U.S. standing and limit the MDB's ability to engage where they are needed the most. So while I believe the capital increase merits your support, it should not happen on the backs of other critical MDB commitments. Um, Senator Merkley, you raised the question of of China's borrowing from the MDBs, and, and I do want to address that point I should say as we already heard um, from the administration that um, this is, this has been something that this administration and frankly the Obama administration was critical of um, that said I, I think it's it's actually misguided to push too hard on this issue uh, particularly when there is a better alternative specifically the capital increase agreement itself requires China and other relatively wealthier borrowers to pay higher interest rates on their World Bank loans higher loan charges will increase bank revenues easing the financing burden on shareholders and creating better incentives for the bank's borrowers. But it's also important to recognize how World Bank lending to China can actually benefit us. In a forthcoming paper, I examined the bank's projects in China, a significant share of which is aimed at the critical task of reducing the country's massive carbon emissions. The damaging effects from climate change are not contained within our national borders, and positive action taken in one country ultimately benefits others, including our own. Uh, Finally, let me turn to China's financing activities in other developing countries. In some respects, China's lending is is like that of the MDBs in providing capital to invest in transport and energy infrastructure, which is sorely needed to spur economic growth. But it's also increasingly clear, as we've heard, that China's lending is pushing some countries into over-indebtedness. Earlier this year, my colleagues and I detailed the debt problems facing China's Belt and Road Initiative and pointed to the failures in China's approach that are harming some countries. Within the Belt and Road, this includes countries like Djibouti, which hosts U.S. and Chinese military bases, as well as Pakistan, Mongolia, and Laos. A key priority for U.S. policy should be to affect a change in behavior by bringing China into the norms and disciplines of other major creditor countries. We can also respond by offering developing countries more options. That should start with strong support for the MDBs, which are ready-made to lend at scale and with high standards. The recently enacted BUILD Act will also usefully bring more U.S.-led development finance to bear globally. That said, the new Development Finance Corporation should be additional and not a substitute for traditional assistance. U.S. leadership through longstanding programs like PEPFAR is doing vital work, measured in lives saved, and they deserve sustained support. It's also important to recognize the essential value of this development finance corporation. Yes, it will deliver more financing, but it is in the standards attached to that financing that will distinguish the institution. The BUILD Act lays important markers on project effectiveness and social and environmental safeguards. Things like ensuring that local communities are consulted and compensated if they are displaced by a road project. It will take diligence to make these things a reality and sustain them over time. Let me close by highlighting the risk of going too far when it it comes to competing with China. There's a difference between offering choices to developing countries and forcing them to choose. It would be a costly mistake to seek to carve up the developing world in Cold War fashion between clients of the US and clients of China. Chinese finance is a reality, and where it is delivering something of value to developing countries, we will not convince them otherwise. Chinese officials are sensitive to the backlash on the debt issue right now, and now is the time to exploit that by seeking a change in policy and practice, not by drawing battle lines in the developing world that are unlikely to hold, but by working with allies to pressure Chinese officials in settings that matter to them, Um, settings like the World Bank, the IMF, and the G20. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Morris. Ms. Siegel.
8: Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, thank you for the opportunity to contribute to today's discussion. Um, I was asked to speak about the International Monetary Fund and also to address China's strategic approach to projecting economic power and influence globally. The IMF was created to foster the stability of the international monetary system, and it does this by engaging in three principles activities. First, it monitors the economic developments of its members through IMF surveillance. Second, it provides loans to IMF members facing balance of payments needs. And third, it enhances the technical competence of IMF members through capacity development. The global economy has changed considerably since the IMF's founding. Economic liberalization has extended beyond trade to now include financial and human capital flows. We are also witnessing the emergence of China as a global power and as a challenger to U.S. economic supremacy. This context makes the activities of the IMF, that is surveillance, lending, and capacity building, more important than ever. In terms of surveillance, the IMF's most recent evaluation of the Chinese economy took place in July, and thanks to efforts championed by the United States to promote transparency, the Fund's report on China can be accessed by anyone with an unrestricted internet connection. Because of IMF surveillance, Chinese authorities, and the rest of the world receive a technical assessment of the China's economy from highly trained economists. Having a fact-based discussion on a common set of indicators, something that's required by the fund's articles of agreement for all fund members, is valuable in and of itself. That is the good news. Where IMF lending is concerned, China, and specifically its Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, is playing a less constructive role. According to the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, the BRI is a well-resourced, whole-of-government concept for regional and global connectivity. BRI financing comes from Chinese policy banks, state-owned commercial banks, the Silk Road Fund, as well as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the New Development Bank. Some projects will deliver the benefits that recipient countries hope for. But reports from BRI countries suggest that the return on other projects will not live up to expectations. A recent report noted that Chinese lending to Pakistan, Angola, and Zambia have complicated the country's prospects for an IMF program due largely to non existent information on the maturity, cost, and terms of Chinese loans. Missing terms or contingent liabilities left out of official statistics would compromise a key piece of IMF due diligence that is the debt sustainability analysis. The IMF's managing director is correct to call for absolute transparency on the nature, size, and terms of debts in order to determine the debt sustainability of any country seeking IMF assistance. Separate but related to comprehensive data reporting is China's reluctance to join the Paris Club. Given China's role as the largest single bilateral creditor to post hipc low-income countries, its failure to join with other creditor nations in seeking cooperative approaches to data collection and to debt relief undermines recipient countries, fellow creditors, and the integrity of the system. The issue of data is where the fund's work on capacity development is particularly relevant. The IMF should be ready to assist China in boosting its capacity to track credit and credit-like instruments and make this information public. Capacity development should also be prioritized for recipient countries so that they can assess financing terms and reduce any information asymmetries between borrowers and creditors. Expanding the envelope of data that member countries are obligated to provide in the context of IMF surveillance is also worth exploring. So to close, IMF activities advance our national interest by boosting transparency, by promoting global financial stability, and by enhancing the technical capacity around the world. Maintaining U.S. support for the IMF through our policy engagement and in the context of periodic IMF resource reviews represents a responsible use of our own scarce national resources. In addition to support for the IMF and the other IFIs, The United States can help countries that have limited options to finance uh, needed investments. Passage of the BUILD Act along with the recently announced Indo-Pacific Transparency Initiative allows the United States to offer a positive agenda for infrastructure investment. Again I thank the subcommittee for the chance to offer my thoughts and I look forward to any questions.
0: Well, I thank each of you for your summary testimony. Uh, there's a lot for us to deal with in a fairly short amount of time, but um, why don't I begin with our first three panelists, uh, Mr. Lowry, Ms. Hillman, Ms. Lee. Each of you spoke to, I believe, the need for a mo- more co- coherent and comprehensive strategy with respect to some of these issues we're dealing with. Um, Mr. Lowry, you indicated that uh, Congress needs to assert our role with respect to trade policy and um, perhaps pressure, you didn't say this, but uh, pressure uh, this and future administrations to clarify our economic security strategy. Um, I'll give you an opportunity to respond. Ms. Hillman, uh, you focused... uh, quite a bit on the WTO in your summary comments indicating uh, that there's a need to fix the binding dispute res- uh, settlement system and you suggested this could best be done by assembling a coalition. I'm not aware that uh, that's been written into any particular strategy document, certainly not uh, in any great detail uh, by a previous administration or, or the current administration. Ms. Lee? You indicated that the Congress, uh, uh, working with our executive branch, should articulate and prioritize a strategy, your words. Uh, Most likely that would uh, affect the sort of positive change I think that we all want with respect to jobs and incomes and economic stability uh, if that change were pursued multilaterally, uh, something uh, you supported. So I think there's a means towards our getting there In fact, I drafted legislation that I think would get us there. It's S-2757, the National Economic Security Strategy Act of 2018. Senator Merkley uh, was uh, the original co-sponsor lead on this. It would create a statutory requirement for the periodic production and submission to Congress of a national economic security strategy. And, What do you think about this idea, Mr. Lowry? We actually have a written document that can be critiqued by the academic community that will signal to our friends and adversaries and partners alike exactly what our strategy is. We could seek buy-in as we do with a national defense strategy or or a national security strategy from the legislative branch. So we're all working together uh, for the betterment of the United States and all we represent is it, is it a good idea to have a written strategy?
4: Um, <clears throat> so I had the honor of uh, serving on the National Security Council staff uh, back in 2001 and 2002. And part of the staff's work was a na- the national security strategy, um, which I do find to be a very helpful document. In fact, I quote used that in my testimony today from the Trump administration. So I, I have read your legislation. I think it would be a very helpful thing. Um, I mean, having international economics um, should be part of any strategy, whether it's the national security strategy or creating a national economic strategy to go into more detail. Just like, for instance, on the national security strategy, there is a national defense strategy that relies on it to create more, to be more specific on how the defense department envisions this uh, document. So I think that this makes a lot of sense to me. It helps create priorities, it helps communicate what the administration is trying to do, whether it's this administration, the next administration, or following administrations.
0: And of course, much of the strategy would be classified in nature. There'd be a classified annex. Um, uh, As with our national security strategy, the rest of it uh, would be open source. Uh, Ms. Hillman, thoughts?
5: I think it would be serving a great need which I see very clearly right now by helping to draw a line between what is economic security and what is national security. Because clearly one of the real threats to the WTO is the fact that the United States has imposed these tariffs on steel and aluminum in the name of national security. And right now those tariffs are being challenged at the WTO um, by many of our trading partners. And the response of the United States has been that somehow we are allowed to violate all of our commitments because the challenge is coming to say you can't put tariffs on steel um, of 25% because we agreed, we bound our tariffs on steel at 0% duties. So by charging this 25% tariff, we're breaking that commitment. We're violating the WTO rules. We said clearly we would not impose tariffs other than equally on all of the members of the WTO, and yet we're putting the tariffs on some but not on. On others so what the United States is intending to say in that litigation is oh no we're allowed to do this because we say it is in the name of national security and the problem for the WTO is if they agree with the United States that you can do anything if you claim that it is in the name of national security every other country can do this to every other product and say that they can put these restraints on if they simply say it's in the name of national security. And if on the other hand, the WTO says no, United States, you cannot do this in the name of national security, the concern is that the Trump administration will withdraw from the WTO on the theory of, you know, sort of who are you, WTO, to tell us what is in our national security. So I think your your legislation and your idea of helping to figure out where is that line between national security from a defense sort of security standpoint versus what is in our economic security would be immensely helpful. I think also going forward as we think about whether or not there's gonna be future tariffs under this section 232, um, it would be very helpful if there could be some of that line drawing. And last thing, I'll only comment quickly, you asked about whether or not there is some kind of a strategy document that would speak to these China issues that I was talking about in terms of a WTO case. Um, The US-China Economic and Review Security Commission uh, just recently very recently released um, its annual report to the Congress and included in their section on trade and China is this idea of bringing a sort of bigger bolder coalition case to challenge these trade issues with respect to China.
0: Excellent.
6: Uh, Ms. Lee. Thank you, thank you Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, I think I, have, I look forward to reviewing your, your document because that sounds like a very um, useful direction to go. And I do believe there's a value in articulating and putting on paper and bringing together all the different agencies to have a coherent strategy. I think that is often missing in terms of U.S. economic policy, and I think... One issue is that we should recognize that there are connections between our economic security and foreign policy, and sometimes those are legitimate concerns that aren't taken into account. I think the other reason that it's useful is that, as we know, and I think we've had a lot of discussion today, other countries, other governments, particularly China, but others as well, have a very concerted economic strategy, a long-term economic strategy that they are playing off of. And if the United States is passive or, um, not coordinated, I think that we will almost uh, inevitably lose out.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's, a, it's a bit ironic. I can, I can go to the internet and access China's strategy. I can, and, and, and in a sense, I have um, more coherence, more clarity, uh, a broader view about what their strategy is on a going forward basis than I do as a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee where my job is in the main oversight And um, I find that not just ironic, but troubling, and um, I think a number of my colleagues find it troubling as well. So um, I'll ask one additional question and then uh, kick it to Senator Merkley. Um, It's a follow-up to you, Ms. Hillman, with respect to uh, this idea of bringing one broad case at the WTO against China. The grounds of the case would be A, uh, that China has, has just broadly violated the expectations of a market economy. That seems sort of a violation of the spirit of the WTO agreement and the expectations you have when invited into the WTO. Uh, but then there are 12 specific commitments that you indicate uh, the charges should include as well, that the one commits to when you enter the WTO, um, in your assessment, uh, why has not why hasn't a case like this been brought?
5: Okay, I think it's uh, it's an excellent question. I, I think there's a number of reasons why it's not been brought. Um, Part of it is, trying to bring a case as a coalition um, is difficult, because you have to get everybody on the same page in terms of thinking about what kind of claims do we want to bring. Um, As I mentioned in the past, there has been really a reluctance, because China retaliates, and retaliates so quickly and immediately against countries that do take actions against China. And they retaliate very clearly in this trade sphere. Um, and even for fairly innocuous actions when the Nobel Peace Prize is given out to a Chinese dissident. What's the first thing China does? It bans um, the exports of salmon because they don't want to in any way reward countries where the Nobel Peace Prize is given when the Philippines challenges um, the uh, development of the islands in the South China Sea at the International Court of Justice and wins the case. What is the first thing China does? Ban Philippine mangoes from going from the Philippines um, into China as a way of retaliating. So countries have been really reluctant to take on China in a major way for fear that they will be the subject of this retaliation. Again, hence the reason why my view is if you put together a large coalition of countries, it does create a bit of a shield against this ability for China to immediately retaliate. Um, The other part of it, again, as I mentioned, is evidence. Um, It is hard to get enough of this evidence, particularly because China is so non-transparent. You simply cannot get your hands on the kind of documents that you would normally need um, in order to prove these cases. And I think the last thing that is really important is one of the major and I would say the most major claim against China relates to the issue of subsidies that China creates massive overcapacity in steel, in aluminum, in chemicals, in all of these products on the backs of subsidies. And the concern there is whether or not the disciplines for how do we get at subsidies in the WTO are adequate. Right now, when the WTO tries to take on subsidies, um, you go kind of two roads. One is you can show um, that the imports of subsidized products are coming into the US market, in which case you can try to put a countervailing duty Um, onto those goods to offset the amount of the subsidy. So if 50% of the cost of production was by a subsidy, you put a 50% duty on. That may work to protect the U.S. economy, but it pushes that subsidized steel out into all of the rest of the world. So it didn't solve the problem. If, on the other hand, what you bring is an adverse effects case, the problem is that the remedy is prospective only, and it only requires China to so-called remove the adverse effects of the subsidy. But if that steel plant is already up, built, and running, it doesn't do you very much good to say prospectively that you're supposed to get rid of the adverse effects of the subsidy. So the other reason why cases have not been brought is because some of the rules in the WTO are probably not sufficient to really take on board um, the substance of the problem that we have with China.
0: Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, I don't believe I'll get to all uh, of the questions I want to ask of all the witnesses because I do want to give uh, Senator Merkley um, a lot of time to ask whatever might be on his mind. Um, thank you. Um, would you encourage us, Ms. Hillman, yes or no, um, uh, to consider contacting the administration, encouraging them to assemble a coalition, gather evidence, and, and and bring a case, even in light of the infirmities with respect to some of the uh, WTO provisions? Do you think it still merits?
5: A- absolutely, yes. If the case wins, okay. you have a lot of leverage over China to really okay. push for it. If it loses, it will make it very clear where are the holes in okay. the WTO rules that need to be fixed. So either Thank way, you. the answer is yes.
0: Thank you. Senator Merkley.
1: Thank you, Mr. Mr. Morris. You noted that some of our loans to China are helping China reduce carbon pollution, and that that's a, a positive thing. Do Do you share the viewpoint from the administration's report last Friday that carbon pollution is a significant world problem, and we need to act quickly to address it? A point that was also made by last month by the IPCC report that was described as a fire alarm going off, saying, "Wake up." act fast on carbon.
7: Absolutely, I do, and I I would make the additional point that, in fact, um, it is, uh, if not the most important thing the MDBs themselves are doing today, uh, among the most important, uh, the capital increase at the World Bank. That agreement itself makes new commitments uh, to climate finance that I think um, are part of what, you know, garner my support for that agreement. I think it's absolutely critical to their agendas going forward.
1: Ms. Siegel do you share that view
8: I I do and I would also add the IMF focuses on macroeconomic issues as opposed to the development issues but the IMF has also thought about climate and climate change as a macroeconomic issues Um, and we do see that there are real macroeconomic impacts from climate change so yes I do agree
1: Ms. Lee
6: Yes, absolutely. And I also think that the WTO could play a more constructive role with respect to climate change to, um, to allow countries that go first and go faster to I- implement carbon-reducing uh, strategies aren't put at a competitive disadvantage through trade, so that allowing border-adjustable methods to, um, to, to uh, adjust at the border for, for the difference in prices between countries that are moving quickly and countries that are moving more slowly. Ms. Hillman? Yes, yes, I totally agree, and and I would only add
5: that I do think I would agree with um, with Ms. Lee that there is more that the WTO can do to both um, reduce all tariffs on anything that would contribute um, in terms of renewable energy types of goods. Um, there's been a long-standing fight over exactly what products should be on that list, and my own view is that fight needs to be over with today um, so that you can go to zero duties and zero restraints of any kind um, on the trade in renewable energy materials in order to, again, make that contribution. Um, I do think the um, WTO is also trying to work at disciplines on fossil fuel subsidies, uh, which is the other way in which the trading system could contribute uh, to helping, but the answer is unequivocally yes.
1: And Mr. Lowry, I don't want to leave you out. Um, thank you. I don't
4: even I'm not going to say yes or no only because I haven't read the report one and secondly i clearly just don't have enough deep deep enough knowledge in this area But I will say this I usually would listen to a lot of scientists that seem to be coming to similar conclusions
1: uh, Thank you um, So uh, mr. Morris I, as you were noting about the loans to China in helping China reduce carbon pollution I couldn't help but recall an article I had read about how China is the major financer of new coal plants around the world. So I asked my team to get me some, some facts here. Uh, so we have um, uh, China is the largest investor in overseas coal projects, having invested $15 billion in the last uh, few years, and they have another $13 billion in proposed projects. The, um, they are involved in planning 700 new coal plants at home and abroad. And, um, and on from a different source, a New York Times article, at the end of 2016, China was immersed in 240 overseas coal power projects. Uh, and I've run into a number of these in different, different parts of, of the world. And um, the uh, same articles note that just the building of these plants that are essentially on the, on the, on the, on the drawing board completely overwhelms Paris. And Paris itself is, is not a significant uh, ceiling in terms of uh, it w- we will break the, uh, the barriers that have set, been set by international scientists for, for two degrees under, under Paris. So uh, you've, some of you have already mentioned strategies that we could use in the international multilateral institutions to help uh, take this on. But uh, I, um, I hear this, this uh, fire alarm ringing saying, wake up world. It's very hard it's very hard because we have deeply and invested uh, uh, ownership of, of, of uh, fossil fuel assets around the world and the owners clearly want to work hard to make keep extracting them and burning them and so that's that's uh, that's uh, an enormous uh, an enormous uh, a challenge uh, but but the international institutions that you all uh, study or represent have Uh, share a little bit more about, uh, and I think uh, Ms. Lee, you mentioned a specific idea that I didn't completely capture, but maybe you'd like to start by mentioning that idea and see if anyone else, how how can we help, how can multilateral institutions really help uh, us as human civilization on this planet take on this enormous and immediate catastrophic challenge?
6: The idea I was talking about had to do with uh, the competitive differences when countries move at different speeds to reduce carbon emissions. So for example, if let's say the United States were to to put on a carbon tax and raise the price of producing certain manufactured goods, and other countries um, might move more slowly, developing countries, and that's certainly the the idea of the Paris Accord. Um, If production were to move from the United States to those places that have not yet Re- reduce carbon emissions, then you're actually increasing emissions globally because you're moving relatively clean production to a relatively dirty place. And one way of um, of deterring that is to uh, to allow a, a border adjustable tax that would adjust for the, the difference in carbon strategies and that that would prevent uh, the competitive um, gaming of that. And that would not, it wouldn't penalize the countries that do the right thing and move more quickly, and, and I believe it is correct that wealthier countries, uh, wealthy industrialized countries should move more quickly than poorer countries, but what you don't want to do is end up with this terrible outcome where um, production... No, I
1: lose. take your point on, on border adjustment. The, um, uh, we recently had a report from Excel Energy in Colorado that put out a request for proposals, and it came back at $0.02 cents per kilowatt hour for wind, $0.03 cents for solar and both of those were below the cost of power from an already depreciated coal plant. Are we at the point where the dropping costs of solar and wind are going to dramatically change the calculations? Because even folks who may not share a concern about the health of our planet may want to be on the smart end of the cheapest energy.
6: Yes, and I think that's a, a really positive development when renewable energy actually en- ends up being cheaper than the more expensive. That That is a huge advantage. But also I think it's true, this goes, I think, back to the economic strategy and the long-term planning is that some countries like China and Germany might have subsidized wind or solar um Panel productions at an earlier stage when it wasn't so obvious that there was an economic advantage, and that's the kind of thing I'd like to also see the United States be thinking ahead, so that we're not bringing up the rear in that kind of a decision. Yes, uh, Scott.
7: Yeah, I would just say, Senator Merkley, I mean, you you raise a, a a good point. I don't think it's received enough attention that it's in fact there seems to be an effect as China goes greener and cleaner at home, they're pushing out dirtier abroad. I think the challenge here, which is consistent with the broader challenge we've talked about, is that we want to bring China into multilateral norms and disciplines. Well, in this area, we need to be sure that they exist. Um, So that's things like standards for export credit agencies when it comes to energy finance, um, development finance abroad. Um, You know, this institution that we are standing up under the BUILD Act, it's going to be really important that it has standards in this area that gives us some standing. Um, to try to enforce the massive volume of financing that's coming out of China and supporting these kinds of projects.
1: Anyone else want to chip in on this? So uh, I want to turn um, uh, back, uh, Ms. Hillman, to your your concept about this strategy for uh, a multilateral uh, challenge. Uh, the, I think of the whole WTO process as clunky, that's maybe on the complimentary side and deeply dysfunctional on maybe more (laughs) accurate way to describe it, and also that fundamentally we struck a deal. It was a um, geostrategic maneuver aimed significantly at separating China from Russia, keeping the communist bloc separated, and we said, you know what, we'll give you access to our market We will let you produce goods at different labor standards, different environmental standards, and different enforcement standards, and very low wages, which means you'll be able to undercut our products. Won't this be a sweet deal for you? And it was a sweet deal, and it remains a sweet deal. And uh, essentially, every manufacturer in America said, "Hmm, can't we make a lot more money going to the cheapest place in the world to make things and then sell it back into the American market? And we saw a massive loss of, of manufacturing. Is it, is it time to rethink this sweet deal for China? They've taken the proceeds from that. They are doing massive infrastructure at home, which I described earlier that I've seen in just within a few trips. They are buying up strategic resources around the world. This is all part of a national, a Chinese national economic security strategy, their belt and road strategy. And my colleague here has said, well, America needs a strategy uh, and uh, our strategy is kind of mired uh, in a uh, going back to our, our Cold War battle, uh, keeping Russia and China separated. And we're, we paid a massive economic price for it. Is it time to rethink the whole thing?
5: I think it very well may be time, and part of why I guess I'm proposing this idea is as part of a, a, a rethink, if you will, a resetting the table vis-a-vis China, um, and the question is sort of under what auspices or under what table setting, if you will, do we have the best leverage um, with respect to China? Because I do think it is clear that many countries around the world share many of the United States' Uh, substantive concerns about China. Um, all of the concerns that you've just articulated, uh, again, that China has gotten away with, because it's not just the United States that is feeling the brunt of a lot of the Chinese exports and, and again, the products that are made with, with the low labor and the poor environmental conditions that you're describing. Those are affecting countries elsewhere in the world. So we have many allies with us that would agree with everything that you've just said in terms of what do we need to do about China. Where they disagree is over the United United States' unilateral tactic in approaching it. And I guess where I'm disagreeing is I don't think we have enough leverage alone to create the kind of change that we're really talking about in China. So my own view is that the only way you're going to get at exactly the issues that you've described is to try to put together a coalition. And I do think it is a large coalition that agrees with you and agrees that China must be dealt with. Um, the question is then, what do you get at the end of the day, whether it is enough change, enough resetting of that relationship? Uh, because I, I, I don't disagree with you that when China joined the WTO, the expectations were really quite different from what the reality has been. And over the first couple of years, it appeared that China was moving in the right direction. It was opening up its economy. It was moving in a more market-oriented direction. It was starting to shut down some some of the most environmentally damaging, but about Mm, I don't know, 2004, 2005, there's no question, China took a major 180-degree turn in the wrong direction from every aspect. Um, it became more state-owned. It became more Communist Party-controlled. It became more abusive on a whole series of labor and environmental rights. So I don't disagree with you. That what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think you are right that we need a very dramatic response to China. And my only point is, I think it needs to be a multilateral response and not just a unilateral. Response.
1: That's a very appropriate response for a multilateral conversation. And uh, our time has expired, so I'm going to turn this back to uh, the chairman. Thank you all very much.
0: Well, thank you, Senator Merkley. And um, so many smart minds, so many topics uh, we've covered, and so many uh, more questions I'd like to ask, but uh, we've run out of time. Uh, chairman's prerogative. Uh, A couple of administrative items, one I I would like to draw some attention to a report of which uh, Scott Morris was one of the co-authors. For those who have an interest in examining the debt implications of the Belt and Road Initiative from a policy perspective, the title of the report uh, I would commend uh, it to you. Uh, Among other things, uh, the report indicates that the World Bank and other MDBs should work toward a more detailed agreement with the Chinese government when it comes to lending standards that will apply to any BRI project, no matter the lender. Uh, With unanimous consent, I'd like to enter this report in the record. Absolutely. And as the last order of business, uh, Mr. Lowry, uh, I will be submitting a quish- uh, question to you for the record because, in your prepared testimony, you called walking away from the TPP "quote reckless and a gift to China." Unquote. Um, I, I would be very interested in your thoughts about where we should go from here with respect to multilateral trade agreements. Um, thanks again, all, uh, for appearing today as witnesses for your research, for your expertise, for the information of. This member and others, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday. And uh, I will, yes.
1: Thank you, I'd like to ask unanimous consent to submit to the record a table from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. It is a summary of what was referred to as China's broken WTO commitments of uh, a dozen uh, commitments where they have, they have failed to live up to their promises.
0: Without objection. And just under the wire. So uh, <laughs> so the record will remain open until Thursday, uh, including for members uh, who may not have been present to submit questions for the record. Thank you again, uh, and uh, thank you, Senator Merkley, for our continued partnership. This hearing is now adjourned.